I don't think it's a secret that we live in an information-saturated world. I mean, I was thinking of this, uh, the election um, just this last Thursday night. I mean, um, the first election I remember was 1987. I know what you're thinking. I'm younger than I look. Um, but, but I remember that. And I remember at the beginning of the campaign, I bought a book which had all the constituencies in. And then all you could do during the election was really watch the evening news every night and then kind of the odd election call. Do you remember that? Um, and then during the night, you basically watched David Dimbleby with the occasional flick onto CFAX. That was basically it, wasn't it? That's how you got your information in 1987. Um, this uh, Thursday night, we've had uh, 24-7 coverage across multiple channels during the campaign. And on the night, we could access information via, as I say, a whole range of television channels, on the web, via social media, such as Facebook and Twitter. I, had, um, I got up in the night, I had my TV on, I had my tablet on my lap, I was checking Twitter on my phone, and um, there was just more information coming at me than ever before. I knew far much more, far more quickly than I've ever done about any election. But it's not that we just know more about stuff, we also know more about people than ever before. Facebook and Twitter, among others, means that we have insights into other people's lives that we never previously had. I, I, um, had recent, I was, heard somebody speak at a conference recently, and I was really interested in what she said, so I began to follow her on Twitter. And because I've done that, it therefore means that I know not only what she thinks of the Church of England's disinvestment in fossil fuels, which is interesting, but also that she has robins nesting in her garden shed and that she had pancakes for breakfast last Monday. Just occasionally, I think I know more about people than I really want to. So we live in an information-saturated world. There's more that we know about stuff and about people than ever before. But I think we also recognise that real knowledge is something actually acquired much more slowly. The knowledge, for example, required to be a doctor is something that takes time to assimilate. However convenient it might be for the incoming administration, medical training cannot be compressed into a few hours on Wikipedia. And actually, likewise, getting to know somebody, someone, requires more than simply looking at someone's Twitter feed. All of us know that relationships actually take time to develop. They require vulnerability and honesty, often going through tough times together. Knowing someone is so much more than simply knowing stuff about them. I call this type of knowledge kind of slow burn knowledge. Yeah? It takes longer to acquire, but it's the more satisfying for it. It may go slightly against the spirit of our age, which wants information now. But I don't think it's out of date. It's still the best knowledge worth having. I guess why I want to explore that idea of slow burn knowledge and just kind of introduce that to us as an idea, because that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And in particular, how it relates to how we know God. How we know God. Because knowing God better is what the Apostle Paul prayed for in the passage we heard read just now. And it's something of what it actually looks like. And in particular, what it looks like in our kind of instant access world that I want us to think about. So if you're here this morning and you're seeking after faith, you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, but perhaps you're interested, perhaps you've been dragged along. Um, I, I hope there's going to be something this morning that makes you kind of understand how knowing God in a relationship is actually the goal of faith. 
and what we're looking for. If you're struggling with faith for whatever reason, I I pray that you'll see the opportunities that each one of us have to know God better. And if you're frankly just here and you're very, very happy with where you are and you think you're great, I hope you're going to be challenged to see knowing God as a lifelong journey. That's my prayer. So can you take your Bibles and open them with me to Ephesians chapter 1. There are Bibles just in the seats in front of you. We're going to look at this passage together. It's Ephesians chapter 1. It's on page 1173. By the way, if you're here for the first time, we're working through a a book of the Bible called Ephesians, written by the Apostle Paul in about AD 62. This is the original uh, text. We're very confident this is what Paul wrote. And although it's written by the Apostle Paul, we believe it was inspired by God. And so we're reading it to hear God's voice to us today. Okay, and we're reading verses 15 to 23. There's a bit of a batting order, I think might be on a yellow sheet of paper, that you'll see I'm suggesting we look at this under two headings. First of all, knowing God, verses 15 to 18. And secondly, knowing the power of the risen Christ, verses 19 to 23. And we'll see how they kind of link up together at the end. So as we launch into the first thing about knowing God and verses 15 to 18, let's just recap the journey so far that we've looked at in Ephesians over the last three or four weeks. After introducing himself, uh, the Apostle Paul, as as you cast your eyes back over verses 1 to 14, what we've done so far, the Apostle Paul introduces himself and then goes into a great kind of extended paean of praise listing all the blessings that the Ephesian believers have in Christ. And as you saw, it's one Greek sentence, he just goes overboard. They are chosen, adopted, forgiven, included, sealed with the Holy Spirit, guaranteed an inheritance. They're part of a great cosmic plan of God to bring heaven and earth together in one new creation under Christ. They're blessed in the past, the present and the future. They're blessed as individuals and as members of a body of Christ where Gentiles and Jews come together. They're blessed in that, well, you know, get the idea. He's pretty excited about how blessed they are. But the really interesting thing is what he does next. You might have thought that given that his message was, you are so blessed, his next message would be, sit back and enjoy the ride. You know? The world's your oyster, go for it. You've won the spiritual lottery, so enjoy the winnings. But he doesn't. Look at what he does next. Look at me at verses 15 to 17. This is how he finishes. For this reason, I, because of all these blessings, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks to you, for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's his prayer. You see... While as Paul has heard of their faith, he thanks God for them as a community where Jew and Gentile have come together. His persistent prayer is that they'll know God better. He doesn't pray for their health or their success or even their growth as a church. He simply prays that they'll know God better. That's a very, very simple prayer, isn't it? It, As I was thinking about it, it raised kind of a number of questions in my mind. I can think of four. Number one, What does knowing God better actually mean? Secondly, why does it matter? Thirdly, how does it happen? And fourthly, when should we pray that prayer ourselves? Should we look at that together? What does God actually, knowing God better actually mean? 
I think we can get the answer from the context. We've seen so far, Paul's already listed all the blessings which are the Ephesians in Christ, the fact they're chosen, adopted, forgiven, etc. He says all those are blessings. But what he wants to make sure for the believers is those blessings are not just words. He wants them to be a lived reality for his readers. In other words, he wants the believers in Ephesus not simply to know about these blessings, but rather to know them deep down in their hearts as an experience in their lives. In other words, knowing God better is not knowing more about God. It's actually knowing him in relationship. Let me give you an illustration. I I can know lots of things about Annabelle. I I can know she's five foot four and a half inches tall. Don't forget the half. I, I, I can know she's a doctor. I can know she plays the piano. But that's not the sort of knowledge that makes a relationship. The stuff that makes a relationship is how I know her. What makes her tick? What makes her laugh and cry? How she feels about the past, the present, and the future. When Paul prays for the Ephesians to know God better, that's what he means. For Paul, knowing God better is about knowing God as the Father who loves them, who's adopted them, who's included them, who's put a seal on their hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what he says, I want you to know God like that. Knowing God is having a relationship with him. Now, why does that matter? Very simply, because that's the reason we were made. That's the reason we were made, to have a relationship with the one who made us. We weren't made to procreate. We weren't made to make money. We weren't made to achieve status or even have fun, although all those have happened and all those are good. We were made to know the one who made us. That's the reason we were made. That's why the, God puts it in the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast in his strength, or the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. We weren't made to be wise or strong or rich on our own. Deep down, we were made to know God. That's the reason you and I were made, to know the one who made us. You see, knowing God is not a kind of nice to have. It actually connects us with our deeping, deepest meaning and purpose. So how does knowing God better actually happen? Well, Paul's words are very helpful here because we see in these words in this little prayer, I see the spirit working through the head and the heart. We have some head language here. Paul prays the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you will know him better in verse 17. That refers to the Holy Spirit helping us understand what God has done for us and revealed for us. But then you have the heart language in verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your hearts are enlightened. That refers to the Holy Spirit opening our hearts to God's light and truth. And you see, both head and heart are needed to know God better. You can't understand your way into a relationship with God. You can't kind of work it out just on your own. But simply, you can't just feel your way into a relationship with God. You can't just sit back and hope for that spiritual feeling to hit. 
The message is you need God's spirit to work in your head and your heart to know God better. So when you read the Bible, you need to pray that God's spirit will give you both understanding to what it says, but also hearts to respond. That's what I prayed for us this morning. And by the way, in this information-saturated world, can I just give a plug for the words of this book? Because there may be more, more information available on the internet than ever before, but the best place to go if you want to know God better is here. And the best way to read it is in the slow burn way of reading a portion of scripture every day because here we have the riches of God's self-revelation. This is how he's disclosed himself. There are great books, by the way. Let me just plug this book for you today. It's called pretty much on message for today, Knowing God. Knowing God is a classic by Jim Packer. If you have not read this book before in your life, will you buy it today and read it? Because there's stuff there that will stretch your mind and warm your heart. It is great stuff, knowing God. There's plenty of copies on the bookstore today. So, when might we know God better? We've got Paul's prayer. We know it's about growing in a relationship with God. We've clocked why that matters and how it happens. But when should we pray, Lord, help me know you better? The answer is now. Today. Because the opportunity to know God better in a relationship is right in front of you, whatever you're facing. It's not going to something that's going to happen in the future when you've got everything sorted. It's now. If what you're facing is suffering at the moment, you can actually know God better through that. If what you're facing is kind of seeking guidance on a difficult issue, you can actually know God better in that place. If it's a holiday or a rest, you can know God better through the creation that you'll see around you. If it's simply the routine of life and work, you can know God better even in kind of just the drudge of normal life. But you need to pray the prayer. And if I'm honest with you, I need to pray it for myself. Because it's very easy to think, I find that I know a lot about God. I mean, I teach others about him. I've got qualifications in theology. But I find that my relationship with God can get stuck. That I feel at times I know more about God than actually knowing him. And so I find myself praying, Lord, just please help me know you better in relationship. It's a tough time, Lord. I'm coming up to a really tough time. But I pray that in that, I just pray I'll know you better. I'll tell you, in my experience, that's a prayer that God always answers. He doesn't always answer it like that. But he does always answer it. And it's not only a prayer, a prayer for myself. I pray it for my children and my families. You know, I guess what I want most of all for my boys is so that they'll know God better. Sam's got his sats this week, but I've really... It's not really the results that matter. I pray that through that experience, he'll know God better as the one he can rely on. And I have to say, it's what I pray for you. I pray that you'll know God better. That's what I, my longing for you and for this church is that we'll know God better in relationship, that we'll know the one who made us. So I just I want, to, I want to say, will we pray that prayer this morning? Will we pray that prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesians I pray that the Spirit will help you to know God better. Lord, please help me to know you better. Even if it's a, a tough place you're going through, Lord, I want to know you in this place. If it's a place of complacency, will you say, Lord, please stir my 
complacency and help me to go deeper into your love. If guidance, say, Lord, please guide my decision, but guide me above all into you. And will you pray that for your children? Will you pray that for your small group? Lord, please help me to know you better, not just to know more about you, but to know you as the one who made me and loved me and will one day call me home. I pray that I will know you better. But there's one very specific thing that Paul prays for the Ephesians to know about God, and we look at our second point here. He prays that kind of fundamental prayer that they will know God better and that they will know the hope of being God's people forever. But the area where he gives most focus is power. Look with me at verses 19 to 21. Paul says, I pray, and then he, in verses 19 he picks up, I pray that he'll know his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and over every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Kind of think, is Paul going off on one here? Why, why does he talk about power so much? What's going on? Shall I give you my best guess from a little bit of research I've done on first century Greco-Roman world? In the ancient Greco-Roman world, power was a very significant commodity and would certainly have, that certainly would have been the case in Ephesus. Uh, political power was important and much fought over. Military power was prized by a Roman Empire still in expansion mode. Economic power was valued as the path to social status. Spiritual power was sought as the key to happy life. Yeah? So if you walked round Ephesus, at the time when Paul had visited and when the people got this letter, you would have seen civil ceremonies where political power was being celebrated. Statues where military power was being celebrated. New buildings where economic power was being celebrated. And the Temple of Artemis, one of the seven ones of the ancient world, where spiritual power was being celebrated. And in that context of this kind of nexus of power, Paul is making a bold claim. He says in verse 19, there is an incomparably great power for us who believe. That phrase in Greek makes clear, Paul is referring to the best power possible. And in verse 20, he says where that power is seen, not in political office, or in military victory, or sizable wealth, or cultic practices... That power is seen when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and ascended to God's right hand. Because defeating death was somebody, something nobody else had ever done. The most powerful politician, the most mighty warrior, the most successful businessman, the most senior priest, none of them could raise someone from the dead. But God did. He raised Jesus from the dead and gave him a place over all the powers of that current age and over every age to come. And with it, he shows that those powers, which you see around you, he says, will not have the last word, but Jesus will. It's really striking that as he prays for the Ephesians to know God better, his mind goes to this vision of the risen and exalted Christ. 
He's almost like saying to the Ephesians, don't be worried by the statues of power that you see around you. Don't look at them, he says. Look to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. When I was living in Germany uh, 20 years ago, there was a little church in a village called Berghausen that I used to visit not far away from where I was living. Extraordinary church, dating back to the 1200s. And the most amazing thing was that the apse of the church, which is the, the apse we have here, was this picture. It was painted in 1220. And it's a picture of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ, seated in glory with authority over the whole creation. It's an extraordinary image. It's a picture that has stayed with me really ever since I first saw it. And it's one you see in a number of churches throughout the world today. As I prayed over the years to know God better, I think that's a picture of knowing the exalted Christ, powerful over all creation, that's really kind of um, helped me lift my eyes to God who is more powerful than anything in this world. Thank you, Brian. Why does that matter? Why does that matter? When we pray to know God better, why does remembering his power matter? Let me give you two reasons. First of all, because it reminds us where to put our trust. There are so many things that look powerful today. Money, education, military, status, political office indeed, as we've been reminded this week. But all of that power is transitory. It has its purpose, but it will not last. And so it cannot bear the full weight of our trust. If we trust our politicians to solve all the world's problems, we will be disappointed. Important though they are, they are not that powerful. If we trust in money to bring us happiness, we will be frustrated. Money can make lots of things happen, but it is not powerful enough to bring us lasting joy. The only place to put our trust is in the one who defeated death and now reigns above all the passing powers of this world. The only place to place our trust is in the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And so second, it reminds us where to fix our eyes. There are so many things that take our attraction today, aren't there? There are no statues like there were in ancient Ephesus, but other things which look so powerful. Big houses, fast cars, beautiful bodies, successful celebrities, triumphant politicians indeed. They all say, look at me. Look here. This is where the power is. But when we remember God's power, we remember to fix our eyes somewhere else. And that is on the Lord Jesus Christ. Crucified, risen, exalted, returning Lord Jesus. Now he won't appear on your Twitter feed. He won't jump at you from the TV news. He won't write a column in your newspaper. Which is why you and I need to pray and worship. Because it's when we pray day by day that we fix our eyes somewhere else. And it's when we worship with God's people that we're reminded where real power is. I wonder how you need that power in your life at the moment. 
Is it the power to speak and live out your faith at work? Is it power to abide in the midst of suffering? Is it power to forgive someone who's really hurt you? Is it power against the battle against sin? Is it power to believe that this world is not all there is? Think of where you are this time tomorrow. 12, 10, 25 tomorrow morning. Where are you going to be? What will God's power for you remain at that, mean at that moment? At that moment, just lift your eyes to that risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ who has power over every power in this age and the one who can bear your trust. Let me draw this together. I'm going to give you a verse that hopefully means you can remember this talk. It brings both halves together and gives you something to take away. It it comes from the Apostle Paul again, but not from Ephesians. It comes from another letter that he wrote in prison, the letter to the Philippians. And chapter 3, verse 10, where Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Now, you see, Paul already knew Christ. He'd met Christ on the Damascus Road. He'd known his forgiving grace. But before he hadn't finished, and in his prison cell, he prays that his relationship with Christ will grow. That's what he wants most of all. And he wants to know the power of Christ's resurrection. Not because that power will bust him out of prison, but because that power will hold him safe from all the other powers that threaten him. Political, military, physical attacks will not harm Paul because Christ has made him safe. I wonder if you'd make that sentence your prayer today and in the weeks to come. Just remember, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. It's a prayer you can pray with confidence because it is God's will. He wants you to know him. That is why he sent Christ into the world. To take upon him our sins so that you and I can be restored to a relationship with the God who made us. He wants you to know him. And he wants you to know him better and better. Whatever your starting point, he wants you to know that you're adopted into his family, that you're forgiven, that you're loved, that you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, that you're precious in his sight. At work, at home, in the community, the one who calls you to serve him in the world is the one who longs for you to know him better and better. And he wants you to know his resurrection power. He wants you to let go of those things that look powerful but will ultimately disappoint. And he wants you to know that power that raised Jesus from the dead and will one day raise all who trust in Christ. Because if you know that, if you know that this world is not the main event, but the foretaste of a better and a new creation, then you'll be able to live in this world with thanksgiving whatever comes your way. That's the power of the resurrection. That this world is not all there is. You see, Paul prayed for that little church in Ephesus that they would know God better and know his power. And I guess I want to pray for us this morning, those words of Paul again, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Let me pray for us.